Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. You have blessed us with the uh, breathed out word of God that is um, what guides us by means of your Holy Spirit to know you, to understand why you came and what you are seeking to do in us. And this morning, we want to spend our time focusing on uh, the, the, the purposeful implications, Lord, of the resurrection. And help us, Lord, to be humble before your word, to allow it to fashion and to shape uh, our thinking, our hearts, our minds, and ultimately, Lord, our lives, so that we can live in a way, Lord, that would please you. And Lord, may uh, this be a time where your word just once again refreshes us, counsels us, um, directs us, and draws our attention to the beauty of your resurrection. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Honestly, the reality of, of the resurrection sermon is actually quite a daunting task for a pastor because uh, you're always uh, trying to figure out how, how are we actually going to approach the resurrection on a particular Easter Sunday morning. Uh, sometimes you can uh, go to the Gospels and you can tell the story of the resurrection and uh, we had some of that this morning as Chris read and walked us through that story. Um, you can also uh, consider the prophecies of the, revel- uh, of the resurrection, not necessarily uh, all in the Old Testament. Some of them are actually in the New Testament leading up to the resurrection. We've seen that as we've walked our way through the Gospel of, John, or Gospel of Mark. Then there are the, the, the proofs or the evidence of the resurrection, and that's what Chris read for us and showed us just how how powerful the resurrection and how true it is, in particular in 1 Corinthians 15, the first number of verses there, just the eyewitness accounts, the evidence that Jesus died, he was buried, and then, surprise, he rose again, and all these people have seen him. Um, Then there's also the preaching of the resurrection, and sometimes we don't recognize that, but the, the book of Acts is full of sermons, Sermons preached by apostles who were preaching about Jesus who rose the third day. And so we could turn there. And oftentimes that's where I have gone is in these areas. But today we want to look at the life that flows out of the resurrection. I mean, we can, we can talk about the resurrection as being a truth and a fact of history. But it's also the basis for our living and we want to see how it is connected to that. About a week, a little over a week ago, my wife and I were, were driving to the airport to pick Adam up, our son, uh, because he went on a missions trip to the Navajo uh, Indians and did ministry there. And on our way to the airport, we were pulled over by a police officer. Now, you know what it's like when that happens, right? The, they, they, the lights are flashing, and they pull you over. And, of course, you're thinking, okay, what did I do? Did I, you know, we were on Orchard Road, and there's this, like, little traffic circle that no one stops at the, at the sign there. They just kind of do their own thing. And I know I did that. And I'm like, oh, man, is he going to get me for that? That would be really bad if he did that because everyone does that. You know, I'm, I'm thinking these things, you know, is there, did I run a, a you know, a stop sign somewhere? Did did I do something? Was I speeding? I don't know. And so he, he comes to the window and he takes our, our insurance and registration and, and, uh, and my driver's license. And, and then he comes and back and he says, sir, your right rear brake light is broken. You need to make sure you get it fixed right away. And both Ellie and I looked at each other and went, ah. Right, because you know how that can just be pocketbook, cha-ching, 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 if it goes a different direction. 
Now, I, I, I want to repeat what he said. He communicated to us a fact, a truth, about the condition of our vehicle, that we had a broken brake light. That was a reality. That was a truth. But he also communicated what he expected of us in light of us now understanding or knowing that truth. We need to get the light fixed. What he communicated was both what we call an indicative and an imperative. Let me explain what those are. An indicative is basically a truth statement. It's a declaration. It is a fact. It tells us what has been done. So in a biblical sense, it is a declaration that this is what God is like. He's holy. He's just. He's pure. He's unchanging. It tells us what God has done. He, he, he you know, created this, this nation called Israel. He brought about salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, and so on. It also is telling us our condition. This is who you are. You're enemies. You're strangers. You are against God. But now if you've embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is who you are now in Christ. Those are all indicatives. Those are all statements of truth, statements of fact. An imperative however, is now, what is it that I must do out of those truths? They call me to something. So an indicative uh, is often a, a, a matter of doctrine or truths that lay a foundation for us. An imperative are the commands or the instructions that push us or compel us to apply those truths and live out of what has been revealed to us. Maybe to say it a little differently, indicatives in the Bible tell us what we have done, imperatives in the Bible tell us what we must do. So today, as we come to our text, we quickly realize that the indicative is the truth of the resurrection. Jesus Christ died, was buried, and he rose again the third day. That is a settled fact in the pages of Scripture. Right? That's not something you have to go hunting for. It's there. It's screaming at us. And that's why the church celebrates today as a day to recognize the beauty and the power and the wonder of the resurrection, not just as a historical fact, but also because something results because of the resurrection. We heard a little bit from Chris as he walked through 1 Corinthians 15. But here we are in our text going to be looking at some imperatives that, that, that flow out of that truth of the resurrection. So I'm putting it this way in a proposition. Because of the resurrection, we are called to live our new lives in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the resurrection is, is what moves us then to live our new lives in the name of Jesus Christ. And let me just explain to you a little bit about what's going on in this book, Colossians. There's four chapters, and the Apostle Paul is the author, and typically what he does is he begins by laying down doctrinal truths, and then that would be chapter one and two, and chapter three and four, he gives application out of those doctrinal truths. And what he's doing in this book is he's arguing against this, this, um, this kind of mystical philosophy called Gnosticism. 
And he's trying to emphasize the era of that Gnosticism. Basically, Gnosticism uh, was saying that there needs to be more than what we have. There needs to be a, a deeper, fuller revelation. There's, there's this, this secret truth. And, and, and many sects, many cults have grown up with this kind of Gnostic attitude where someone has a special dream or revelation from God and they, they put it in some book form and then that's the basis then of how they are, they are going to be living or interpreting scripture. It's the lens by which they look at it. Also, they say, you don't know this truth until you actually join in fact, you think this is the Church of Scientology, they say, well, we're not, we're not going to let you know the truth until you join. And once you join, then you can learn the next truth. And of course, then there are all these different stages that you can't learn, and it keeps people in this bondage. There's this deeper thing. And, and what Paul is saying is, listen, Christ is sufficient. He's done everything necessary. There's nothing more. And if Christ is sufficient, then we are complete in him. And what we are to do then is we are to live out of that truth. That truth then is applied to us. And so the application in chapter 3 and 4 is how we are to live in light of Christ's, Christ's work in us. So that's just a foundation of what this book is about. We come now to chapter 3. So this is a hinge. We begin here with a hinge statement. And what we're going to have here is basically a call to a resurrection life, and secondly, a call to a resurrection living. Those would be the main points here that would be in your handout. A call to a resurrection life, which is an indicative, and then a resurrection living, which is an imperative. Let's first of all look at this resurrection life. Now, here are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture, <laughs> And I want you to pause, and I want you to think about it in those terms. As I read here, listen, you have been raised up with Christ. I mean, let, 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 read it one more time, and, and let the truth of that statement settle in your mind and your heart this morning. Say it again and ponder the depth of joy and the sense of release that the content of those words communicates. Jesus accomplished everything he needed to accomplish by dying on the cross and paying for our sin, and the seal of certainty is vindicated with Jesus' rising from the grave. He conquered death. He now lives. And we who have embraced Christ as our Lord and Savior, we who believe that what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross was to pay for our sins, we have the promise that we too now live in the power of the resurrection. That our life, this life we live now, is because of our resurrection. We have been raised with Christ. Our identity is in Christ. Those are both settled facts that Scripture reveals for us over and over and over again. Now, one of the things that happens to a teenager in life, one of the, you might want to say, um, experiences of actually growing and, and, and arriving is for them to go to the DMV and to not just take their written license, but to take their driver's test. And I remember I took my son Adam 
And, and uh, I remember as I'm waiting for Adam to go take his driver's test, and we went out to Pleasanton, or Dublin, it was Pleasanton, and we, we drove around there. I knew the route that they take and all that kind of stuff. We did it a few times and stuff. I wasn't too concerned about him. But I was sitting there, and I was watching people as they were coming back from it. And most of them are teenagers. So you know what they did? They'd step out of the car kind of nervously, and then they'd turn because their parents were sitting there. They'd go like, I did it! I did it! I conquered this! I got this! Right? And what they're saying basically is this, I have passed. I am now official. Look out, California, right? That's what all the Facebook posts are saying at that point in time. And now, friends, here's, here's the deal. This is the truth of the words, we have been raised with Christ. We, who have embraced him as our Lord and Savior, are Official, we are approved by Christ through his resurrection. We have been raised up with Christ. It's a settled fact, it's a settled truth. But there's two realities I want to just draw your attention to that are helpful, I think, as we consider that um, and, and lay this foundation. First of all, because of that reality, I'm sorry, I should have put this up here, um, we have a confident assurance. It is a real assurance of our salvation. There is no doubt that Christ has successfully accomplished his mission, and along with that, we should be in no doubt that we who are followers of, of, of Christ are in Christ. In other words, it's all Christ doing. He's the one that has drawn us to himself. He is the one who's doing the work. We have responded to it, and as a result, we are his we have been saved, Scripture says. I want you to consider the words of Romans 8, 31 through 33. And just listen as I read. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let me just tell you something. If you're a child of God, God is for you. And you can be assured that he is for you. You, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect or God's chosen? It is God who justifies. So it is God who is for us. He is the one that has been doing this. And so when hard times come, and the natural questions come into our minds, questions like, where is God in all of this? Is he really for me? Can I really trust him? The answer to those questions is yes. He is for me. And yes, we can really trust him. Why? Because we are raised with Christ. We are raised with him. We are not abandoned by God during those times. He is very much with us. That is our position. That is our comfort. That is our assurance. But not only is there assurance, there is also adoption. Adoption. Because we are raised with him, we are also adopted into Christ's family. And that's where we get, you know, the, this conversation we have in the church, you know, we may not use it so much here, but brother this and sister that, we recognize that we are all part of a family together. And we have been ad adopted. In fact, the, the, the language of adoption is given to us in, in a masculine way because the emphasis in adoption is that we have been adopted to be heirs. And again, let me read 
Galatians chapter 3, verses 26, and I'm going to read through chapter 4, and I just want you to hear um, what it says. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of, his, uh, uh, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I mean that the, the heir as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So he's taken male, female, slave, or free. They're all identified here as being adopted as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, what he's saying here is this. It's not just... I mean, it's great to say, hey, we're part of the family, but we are part of the family where all of us have a status as a son who would be the heir. Premium status in the family. That's the point that he's making here. So this is our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We're children, we're sons, we're heirs. Now, both of these truths are settled facts of Scripture, and they teach us that God is for us, and that we are adopted into his family. Now, friends, those are the indicatives. Those are the truths about the the resurrection and some of the implications of the resurrection for us. But now we want to move on to a resurrection living because we live now out of this new life that we have been given. It's not just, well, he rose, and so you can have this life But there's this life now that is supposed to be fueled by and strengthened by the resurrection. So let's go back to our text and notice what it says here. It it begins with the phrase, if then you have been raised with Christ. Now, it's a correct translation, but it can be a little misleading. And what I mean by misleading is not saying that it's wrong, because we often use the sense of, of if in the sense, well, it's possible. The, the, the point that he's making here is not if. He's saying, really, since you have been raised with Christ. This is an historical event and an, a, a, an actual fact about your condition. Since you have been raised with Christ. Now, again, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I want you to follow along as I, as I read this. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, see that the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul also says in Romans chapter 6 and verses 3 and 4 the following. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we 
two might walk in newness of life. Now, what Paul is arguing for here is these are spiritual statements. These are statements that describe our, our, our death to the old man, our new life that we have in Christ. And this resurrection now that we have been given to walk into this new newness of life. So we, you know, we often hear the expression, you've been born again. We hear that we have been given everlasting life. Everyone has everlasting life. I mean, that's what scripture teaches, right? You're either going to die and you're going to end up in this place called hell. It's a real place. It's not a figment of our imagination. Scripture's full of it. And without it being a real place, it kind of makes heaven kind of not seem really important. But then there's also this place of heaven. And this is what we have as, as, as our hope. We, we have this settled reality, this certainty of being present in heaven because of the newness of life. Now, when we, we're going to have a baptism here in a couple of weeks. You heard that in the announcements. When we do the baptism, I'm usually one who's doing, and this is what I say. I, I say, as I put the person under the water, I say, buried in the likeness of Jesus' death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. And the point there is to say, Jesus died, was buried, and rose, but so too have we when we have embraced him as our Lord and Savior. That's the argument here that Paul is making. This resurrection fuels our living. We live with the power and the strength and the impact of the resurrection in our lives. Now, how does that actually take shape? And this is where Paul then is going to give us three, um, three realities or three ways in which this takes place. First of all, um, there's going to be a new orientation, a new orientation. If then you've been raised with Christ, he says, seek those things which are above. And then he says, set your minds on things that are above. What is this new orientation? Paul has been arguing against the kind of thinking and ideology that is rooted in the domain of darkness. I'm using language here from earlier in Colossians. It's also uh, an ideology that is rooted in the elementary principles of this world. And in this text, he calls them the things of the earth. This is the arena of thinking and behavior that we, are, uh, we were enslaved to before Christ set us free. But now because of Christ and his suffering on the cross and his resurrection, we are no longer enslaved to the same Reality, we have been hidden with Christ in God and have heaven as our reality and our hope. So Paul shows us that since we've been raised with Christ, we need to have a new focus and a new orientation. Not the things of earth, but the things that are above, the things that are heavenly. So he says, first of all here, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Literally, it's keep seeking. Keep on seeking. This isn't just kind of a a one-time thing. This is an ongoing, continual behavior and focus or orientation. Get your heart out of the things of this earth and make the things of Christ your heart's treasure. That's what he says in Matthew uh, chapter 6 and verse 33, a very familiar passage to us. But seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus says, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
So you, you, you lift your eyes, you lift the gaze of your heart from the, the, the things of this world, and you, you lift them up to Christ. You lift them up to heavenly realities. Secondly, he goes on, set your mind on things that are above. So you have the heart and you have now the mind, not on the things that are on the earth. Again, this set your minds is, is this inner disposition that says I am determined to make sure that my thinking, the way I think and what I think is no longer on earthly things, but it is on heavenly things. And again, it's a continual habit of the believer. So the question now is what are the things that are above? Well, the things that are above are the qualities that are tied to the values and characteristics of Christ and his kingdom. This is what Paul tells us a little earlier in Colossians, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And notice what it says there, if you want to follow along. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, yeah, the earth, the earthly things, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So there's these two arenas. We have this domain of darkness and the kingdom of his beloved son. Get your eyes out of this domain of darkness and have your gaze on this, this kingdom of Christ. And some of the examples of what those values or characteristics are are given for us in our text. Look at chapter three, verses 12 through 14, as I just highlight some of those that he gives. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So you have these, you have these realities that are part of kingdom values. They flow out of who Christ is. They flow out of what his kingdom is all about. And so Paul is saying, listen, get out of this earthly thinking and begin to set your heart and your mind on the things that are above. Now hear this. You are, as a child of God, Yes, you are a citizen of the earth. I mean, I'm an, I'm an American citizen. Yes, I'm, you might be a citizen of another country, but we all, because of Christ, are new citizens in a new kingdom. And so our focus and our attention should be on that new kingdom. But hear this. In order for us to understand the things of the earth or this kingdom that we live in now, we must look up. And we must look up before we look down, if that makes any sense, Right? We need to look up. We need to see what Christ says. We need to see what, what he expects so that we can then look down and understand how we are to flesh out the things that God has given us as responsibilities. To, to sort of set your, your, your heart on things above is not to say, well, forget about your, you know, your earthly responsibilities. Forget about your job. I and mean, we're not talking here about being so heavenly minded that you're no longer any earthly good. We're talking about being so heavenly minded that you now can see the earth with eyes that are, that are looking at the earth through the lens of the kingdom and the values that come from Christ. That's what he calls us to. 
So if I'm married, I'm going to now look at my spouse in a way not that is earthly, that is selfish, that is the way the world thinks, but I'm going to look at my spouse through the lens of what Christ and his kingdom says, and it's going to bring freshness, and it's going to bring perspective that is opposed to the things of the world. You just lay it all out, your job and your schooling, all that kind of stuff. How you live your life is going to be completely different because you're looking up rather than simply looking ahead. In our theologically confused Christianity today that comes up with all these sensational, I'll use a little s, spiritual experiences through dreams or visions or perceived dialogues with Christ, ad nauseum, right? What's the latest book that's coming out now? It's worth noting and repeating that the source of our understanding of these heavenly things must come from the revealed word of God, the very scriptures themselves. So be, be very, you know, when someone says, well, you know, I had this encounter with God, I had a dream, and, and he told me these things, you know, lots of red flags should be bouncing up because God re- has revealed himself fully and necessarily through his very word to tell us what he desires, who he is, what he expects of us. All right? Now, we have a new orientation. So we we seek the things that are above and we set our minds on the things that are heavenly by uh, by being transformed by the word of God, by thinking on Christ and what he has done, by dwelling on those things that are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and of good repute, excellent and praiseworthy, and that's Philippians 4.8. Friends, looking up will lift you up. It's easy to get caught up with the things of this earth. Friends, our, our country's political world right now is something that is just consuming us. And the reason it's consuming us is because we all have these things called phones. And as soon as some politician says something, there it is, you get an alert and you're reading it, and then it takes you to a Facebook or someplace that then people are arguing about it and all this kind of stuff. And it's so easy to get caught up and to listen to all this stuff. And it's like you forget about the fact that there is a suffering God who's totally in control. But it's so easy to get caught up with the things of earth. And we must get our heads out of the fog of earthly things and into the light of heaven by thinking about Christ and his work in my life and his work in the life of Jesus and his work in the life of the church and, and his kingdom and his attributes and his promises. And friends, I'm not just saying pie in the sky. I'm saying look at those realities first so that those realities then can fashion your understanding of what's going on here. Looking up will lift you up, and looking up will help you to look down. So not only does the resurrection compel us to look heavenward with a new orientation, we're also compelled to pursue our new identity in Christ. That's the second reality that flows out of this resurrection that fuels our living. We have a new identity. Now what is this new identity? We're no longer aliens. We're no longer strangers. We're no longer enslaved to this world. 
but we are saints, we're brothers, we're sisters in Christ who have been redeemed by the work of Christ. So Paul makes it a point here to say that we are complete, that we are to be walking in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, that is a reflection of the qualities and the character of Christ. You see, as followers of Christ, we are reconciled to God, and it is, it is Christ's goal to present us before his Father, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Our identity is in Christ, We are followers of Christ, and it is to be our pursuit to be like Christ. So we are in Christ, we're of Christ, and we are to be like Christ. We have been reconciled to Christ, and the penalty of our sin has been paid for, bringing about our reconciliation. But the presence of sin remains. I think this can be confusing to some people. You know, when I, come, when I come to faith in Jesus Christ, when I believe that he is my Lord and Savior, I put my faith and trust in him, there can be this idea that, 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 that all my sins will go away. And that's not what scripture says. All our sins are paid for. They're, the, the slate of your offense against God is wiped clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. But the presence of sin remains. You still lie, right? You still get angry. Right? You still want to do things that you, you know you shouldn't do, and you know even more now that you shouldn't do it because you're, you're, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. You have the Word of God now that is speaking to you. You're like, oh, man, what's going on here? The reality is that, that you, by virtue simply of your existence, have a sin nature. God doesn't judge you for your sin. He is, he is simply judging you by virtue of the fact that you are a sinner. All of us are born in sin. And then, as a result of that, we sin. Okay? So, let me just kind of flesh that out a little bit. When I was in in Russia uh, a number of years ago um, with a previous church, I took a team. I was doing some ministry with pastors and took a team with us that did all sorts of stuff with some young people. And uh, we were in a a town called Ishimbai, which is south of Ufa by three hours. That doesn't mean anything to you, I know, all right? Uh, Just to give clarity, it was north of Kazakhstan, okay? All right, very good. We're all on the same page here. It was out in the middle of nowhere, basically, all right? It was cold, and we were with Pastor Sergei Loshek. And one of the things that's always interesting to me is when you go to different countries, just the kind of things they do, um, and just the different ways they do things. And um, we were in this vehicle that was... I guess you might say kind of like what we would call a minivan, but it was a little squarer and a little higher and that kind of stuff. And, and uh, it was a, uh, you know, we, we, were, we had already gone to his apartment. All of our suitcases were there, but we were, we were gone the day to do ministry in his church and other places. And so we had, a, you know, a guitar, we had backpacks, and we had stuff like that. And it was cold, so we had all our winter stuff on. And uh, we were finishing up the day, and we're driving home from that last place of ministry, and we began to smell this really, really strong smell. And of course, you know, those that were aware recognized that it was diesel, right? It was a diesel vehicle. And we're like, man, where is this smell coming from? Um, and, you know, so we, we pulled over, and Sergey looked at it, and he's like, oh, the, you know, the gas calf was, was off, and it must have been coming up through, and, you know, this kind of stuff. Okay, fine, no big deal. It'll blow away pretty soon, and about 10 minutes later, it was getting even worse. And we looking down at the floor, and it was, it was wet, and I mean, the stench, and it was diesel that was all over the floor of this vehicle. 
And, and bef- when we got in the car and we're packing the car, one of the things I noticed is that in Russia, they reuse things, right? This is this interesting concept they have. They actually reuse bottles and put things in them rather than just throw them away and get this new thing, right? So they had these, these Coke bottles, two-liter Coke bottles, and apparently he had put water in them and had stored them at the side in the back of the car. Well, come to find out, it wasn't water in those Coke bottles. It was diesel, and one of those bottles had tipped over and the diesel now is going through all of the van. Well, we get back to the apartment, and the apartment, of course, is one of these high-rise places. The girls go upstairs, they start to clean up, the guys stay back, and we're like, you know, we're mopping this thing out, trying to get it all, you know, de-dieseled. Um, and uh, we, we finally get done, if, we'll put that in, in quotes, right? And we go up to the apartment, and we take turns taking our clothes off, taking showers. Mrs. Loshak took our clothes and she washes them. Four times she washed all of our clothes and still the smell of diesel was present. One of the people that was there with us, he was so excited because he got some new Russian shoes. Uh Uh-huh, that's right. That's right. And, And he was wearing them that day and they were all full of diesel. You cannot get the smell of diesel out. Now, friends, I share that with you to kind of paint a picture. That diesel had permeated everything that we had with us that day. It just left this lingering stench on our very person. And friends, that is what sin does in us. It is, it is everywhere. When we talk about the fact that we are defiled we're, we're, not, we're not trying to put each other down. We're simply trying to explain the reality of the condition. Sin has permeated everything in us. I mean, the stench of sin remains. Now, thankfully, the penalty for that sin has been paid for by what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. But sin remains. And we might try and wash and wash and wash. And you know what it's like. You're struggling with a particular sin area in your life. You're like, I'm just trying to work on this, Lord. And, and you're trying to do what he wants you to do, but it still remains. It's still there. Jesus Christ on the cross freed us from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, but not from the presence of sin. That is yet to come when he calls us into glory. And so what we're looking at here as we come uh, to this particular point, this new identity, is that Jesus Christ has identified us as his children. We are in Christ. Our identity now is with him. And so what we need to do is we need to actually, during the course of our Christian lives here, be in this process of doing something, and what Paul tells us here is that we need to be putting off, and we need to be putting on. And the analogy that he's using here is a person who has covered themselves with mud and filth, and they have these clothes. 
Now, if you were covered with mud and filth, this is what you would do. I know because you're a human being. You're natural. You would take your dirty, muddy clothes off and go, ew, right, and pass them off, right? And what you'd do is you would jump in the shower and you go, ah, uh, right? And then you, once you're done with your shower, you step out and you wouldn't say, oh, where are my dirty clothes again? I want my dirty clothes because I like my dirty clothes. No, you're like, I don't want those clothes. I want some clean, fresh clothes. That's the image he's painting here. That's, that's, that's how he's kind of seeking to get the truth uh, uh, to his hearers here. And so he talks then about this idea of putting off. He uses three expressions to help us uh, understand what it means to put off. He uses the expression, first of all, put to death. And this is where we get the idea of mortify. You've heard of, you know, mortification of your sin. That's an old word that means you are putting to death your sin. You're not just kind of like, you know, playing with it. This is not some kind of a toy you kind of mess around with. Oh, you know, let the, let the, let the kitty out of the box for a while, and then I'll put him back, that kind of thing. I'll play. No, no, it's kill. I know, don't kill a kitty, but I'm just saying, right? The idea is you're not, you're not toying with sin. You're putting it to death. And this is a serious thing for the child of God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he lists a bunch of things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, uh, uh, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is being poured out because of these things. In these you two once walked, past tense, when you were living in them. Okay? Put them to death. Secondly, put away. Verse 8, put away away. In other words, get rid of them. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And then he says, put off. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So even with these expressions, these are serious responsibilities that we have before us. Sin remains, but sin must be removed with a passion and a vigor. It must be put to death, put away, and put off. And friends, this is all the ability to do all of this and, and the desire to do all of this is, is flowing out of this statement since you have been raised with Christ, okay? This is what you then as a follower of Christ are called to. He's, he's giving you a command. He's giving you an instruction to do these things. But not only that, he then says put on. We pick it up in verse 10 because he uses the expression a couple of times. And, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of his creator. So what happens here is that as you put off all these dirty clothes, but what you're doing here is you are being renewed in the knowledge. You're being renewed in understanding of what truly honors God and, and, and reflects what it means to be a child of God. And then you put on these new clothes. Now, I think it's interesting here that he, he makes it a point in the context of Colossae, in verse 11, it says, Here is not, uh, is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And, you know, this is, a, uh, this is a little bit of a side note, but it fits the context here, and that is this. That this, this reality, these truths, are for all believers, regardless of race or cultural distinction. It is the gospel that transforms, and it is the gospel that unites ethnicities together. And friends, if, if there anyone has an answer for the kind of stuff that we're facing in our country today, it is the church. 
The church that is rightly unpacking the truth of the word of God. That's what he's saying here. This is for all of us. So racism has always been a problem in the world, and it will continue until the Lord returns. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that brings peace and harmony to the divisions of sinful mankind. You see, we are all brought together. I mean, just, you just think about the, just the, the, the color of this little gathering of people here. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is because you have a new citizenship. The only time it matters is when we have a potluck. And bring it on, my friends, bring it on, right? And notice what he says in verse 12 about put on. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He's describing us there. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I mean, what he's saying there is that, that this love in this context is the mortar between the bricks. It just pulls it all together. Now, friends, these are attitudes that, that flow out of putting on Christ. We need to put these things on. All, the, all these other things he's talking about are things that need to be put off. We renewed in our thinking, and we now put on the things that are our marks of the kingdom, our marks of the character of Christ. And since we have been raised with Christ, we're also called to embrace a new attitude. We have a new orientation, a new identity, but now a new attitude. With heaven as our destiny and the pursuit of Christ's likeness as our goal, we press on the journey of life with kingdom attitudes. And he's going to give us four that I think will be helpful for us as we, as we kind of see what then is, is the backdrop to this kind of living. First of all, he says in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which, you in, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Now it can be said, I think quite confidently, that man's deepest need is for peace. Peace in relationships. Peace in society. Peace in the heart. Peace with God. So what is the peace of Christ or the, the peace of God? In the New Testament, it refers to a, a pact, an agreement, a bond. You might say a covenant. In the Old Testament, it refers more to the idea of, of rest and security. You want to bring those things together and we realize that it speaks of uh, the rest and security that, that every believer has because of this covenant made with us by Christ on the cross. You see, it's, it's, it's a peace that, that brings this, this, this joy and this rest and this security. It's also a peace that provides for us. It's confidence, it's assurance that we are secure in Christ, both in life and in death. So why is it that believers are able to walk through the threshold of death with, with a peace that others don't have? It's because of what we know. 
We know what Christ has done for us, and we know the extent of it, and we know our condition, that we are sinful creatures. But our sin has been paid for. And we are awaiting our reunion with Christ in a more physical reality, and that is our being called into heaven. But in this text, this this peace is, is being described for us a little bit more as an umpire. It is, it is this peace that, that is this rule, right? This peace is to rule in our heart. And the idea is it's to, it's to make judgments. It is to be able to distinguish between what is good and helpful and right as opposed to those things which are of the earth. And this peace helps us with that discernment. So we're to live our lives with an attitude that is anchored and fueled by the peace of Christ. Secondly, another attitude it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all, uh, uh, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the word of Christ then is to dwell in us and be accepted by a trustful heart, welcomed by a surrendered will, and obeyed by a loyal life. So the word of Christ, the words of Christ, are not simply to be words of information. They are words that fuel our living and our life that God has given us. It is the word of Christ that must dwell in us, first of all. So in other words, it, it is the very life that is dwelling in us, guiding us, counseling us, with regard to our thoughts and our words and our actions. It is the word of Christ that must dwell in us richly, and the idea there is in abundance throughout every part of our being. And that's, friends, that's one of the reasons why we we make the the regular intake of the word of God a, a habit in our lives, whether we're doing it personally on our own, whether we're doing it in small groups, as well as as we're gathered together as the, the body of Christ listening to the preaching of the word of God. These are all so important. Why? Because we need the word of God to permeate us, to be through us richly. But it is the word of God, or the word of Christ, that is wisely teaching and admonishing us. And friends, we we need counsel. We need to be taught. And sometimes we need to be admonished. We need to be corrected. And wouldn't you prefer the God of the universe who is truly holy and loving and kind. Yes, he is wrathful, but he is also a God who wants the best for you, especially the fact that you're a child of his. So let the word of God expose your sinfulness so that you can deal with the things that are um, not in, in line with who you should be as a follower of Christ. So the word of Christ is to all in our hearts. But I want you to also notice there's this thankfulness or gratitude that should be in our hearts. The word wisdom in this text can emphasize what is before and what comes next in the sentence. The word of God fuels both the application of the word of Christ in our hearts as well as the praise we offer to him. Isn't it? I, I love the singing this morning. I mean, I, I, I appreciate just what, what, what Chris and, and the group did here this morning. I mean, some of those songs may not be familiar to you, but there were, there, were, there were joyous sounds coming from you. I could hear you sing, and there was something beautiful about that. And we, say, we sing to one another 
with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's what Ephesians tells us. And so the, the, these singing is a reflection of our gratitude and our thankfulness to God. But no, So notice here, he says, when Paul talks about the peace of Christ, he ends with, and be thankful. When he talks about the word of Christ, he ends with a word of instruction for thankfulness in our hearts to God. And we go to the end of our text here, the end of this paragraph, he ends it with a command to give thanks to God. So a heart attitude of gratitude should be present with us every day as we're journeying along, living our lives for Christ. These are attitudes, peace of Christ in our heart, the word of Christ in our heart, thankfulness in our heart. And the last one here is the name of Jesus in your heart. Now this kind of summarizes in a general way what is going on in this text. The life we're called to live for Christ cannot and should not be summarized by a list of rules of do's and don'ts. Certainly we have a couple of lists here and these lists are helpful. They give us perspective of what we need to avoid and what we need to embrace, but they're not exhaustive. And so Paul now drops into this text something that will help us and will give us uh, you know, sometimes we, we, need, uh, we need more than simply do this and avoid that. He, and Paul knows that, and so he gives us this catch-all principle to work from, and here's what he says. Whatever you do, there's the broad statement, right? Whatever you do, in word or deed, whatever comes out of your mouth, in your behavior, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus so whatever you think, say, or do matters to Christ. And we should seek to do everything in the name of the Lord. Now, what is this name of the Lord? I want to say it four ways. It is, first of all, to act always in concert with the nature and the character of our Lord. To be like Jesus. Secondly, it's to live out your life in a way that reflects your citizenship in his kingdom. In other words, these are kingdom principles. These are kingdom realities. And Jesus in particular in the gospels is laying out these kingdom attitudes that we should have. Third, it is to live out of the gospel and the teachings of the gospel as revealed in the word of God. So in other words, it's saying, well, since, since I have been saved from that, now I can live in a way that truly honors Christ, that, that reflects the gospel change in my life. Or if I'm reading something in the scripture that says, hey, this is what you need to do, I'm doing it because scripture is revealing it to me. Finally, a way to say it is this. It is simply to think, to speak, and to act consistently with who Jesus is and what Jesus wants. Now it's the fact that we're united with Christ through his resurrection from the dead, that we have strength and power to live our lives in this way. We have resurrection life, tells us who we are as God's children, but then there's resurrection living that compels us to live our lives out of the resurrection that is the foundation for our lives and so we're called to this new orientation, we're called to this new identity, and we're called to these new attitudes. This is all because of the resurrection, friends. 
Now see, some people say, oh, the Bible's just full of rules and regulations. You could come to this passage, ignore the first part of verse one, and just say, all Paul's doing is saying, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, it's rules and regulations. No, what he's saying is, listen, here's what the resurrection does. It lets you know how to live. And Paul's not expecting perfection, but he's, he's expecting progress. He's wanting us as, his, as God's children to, to make progress in our walk to be more and more like Christ. And I just reflected on this text and I thought to myself, what has this text told us about Christ? Just listen as I list off the things that are in this text. Christ is risen, he's seated at the right hand of God, he is our life, he will appear in glory, he is the creator, he is all and in all, he forgives, he is the source of peace, his words are the basis of our teaching and encouragement, his name is to be glorified. And then what does this text tell us about us? That we deserve the wrath of God, that we are God's chosen ones, just think about that that we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God, that we are forgiven. I wanna finish our time here by reflecting a little bit more on that statement that I just read. We have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Now friends, that is, that is a beautiful picture. You may not completely understand it, but it is a beautiful picture it is an indicative, it is a truth statement about our position in Christ and our relationship to God because of Christ. This is what takes place to all who have come to Jesus by faith, trusting in his sacrifice on the cross. We are hidden with Christ in God. This is what takes place to those whose lives have been empowered by the resurrection. We are hidden with Christ in God. To say that we're hidden is to say three things. Let me just walk us through them. Number one, it's an issue here of security. We're hidden with Christ in God. We're both safe and secure in Christ. We're, we're, we're hidden, we're protected. Secondly, it speaks to intimacy. Anyone here ever play hide and seek? There's another version of that called sardines. Right? Or maybe you've, you've hid and, you know, under the, some stairs in a closet somewhere and there's just two people there and you're like, you know, your faces are like this, you know, you're like closed. There's, there's an intimacy that comes when you're hidden together. We're hidden in Christ. We're not just kind of like somewhere off in the distance and he's kind of pulling us in everyone. No, no, we're living our lives with him. And third, there is, I'll use this word secrecy and I want to explain it a little bit because this is not the agnostic kind of secrecy. This is simply the, 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 the reality that the natural man, the man without God, does not understand the things of the spirit of God. To him... Or to her, they are foolishness. They do not understand and comprehend why it is that we would want to spend time reading God's word or, or praying or, or getting perspective that, that comes from heaven. It doesn't make any sense to them. The idea is foreign. And that's why it would be secret. We're hidden with Christ in God. 
And friends, this hiddenness is the permanent state of every believer, and it is all a result of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Friends, I just, I wanna ask you this morning, is your life hidden with Christ in God? Have you experienced the life-giving power of the resurrection? Well, you've probably heard about it. You've seen some of the proofs, but, but is your life a reflection of this life-giving power of the resurrection? Where you see Christ at work and he's shaping you and challenging and you're, you're making progress with the things in your life to become more and more like him. Are you trusting and resting in his gift of salvation. Oh friends, this morning, I I want you to see Jesus who is hung on the cross, who's been buried, and who has rose, risen again. But here's the thing, I want you to see that, but I also want you to be impacted by that. I want it to have an effect in your heart. I want you to be changed afresh. Maybe as a believer, you're like, man, this is renewing stuff. I've known about the resurrection, but but now I see how this fuels my walk with God and my discipleship and my growth in Christ, that I I need to be reminded of the resurrection. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you're here, and you, you haven't even really thought about the conversion side of things. You just know that Christians believe this thing called the resurrection. Do you see it's far more than the fact that we believe it? The fact that it happened now opens a door of relationship with Christ, with the creator of the universe. What are you going to do with that? See, there's this true statement, but then there's a a response. Now, in a moment, we're going to sing a song. And and one one of the images that is used in Scripture to describe Christ is is him as a rock. And as this rock, sometimes you go to some places and there are little caves in rocks. And what, what, he's, what this song is saying is, is hiding in that cave, hiding in that rock. It's a beautiful picture of this, this wonderful truth that we have in our text today that is the result of the resurrection. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin, the double cure, safe from wrath, but also make me pure. Lord, I ask today that as we've contemplated the resurrection as the fuel that, that helps us to live our lives for your glory, that we would seriously consider this thing that we call the relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship with you, is not just some spiritual mumbo-jumbo, but that it is real, that it is true, that it is life-breathing and giving. It is absolutely necessary for me to see that the resurrection fuels this new life that you've given. Lord, I, I ask if anyone may be here today that that is wrestling with this, that your Holy Spirit would grip their heart and Lord, they would, they would let go of those things that would hinder them from embracing you fully as Lord and Savior. For we who are your children, Lord, we ask for a freshness, a renewal in our heart to pursue you because of the resurrection, to live out of that resurrection, to live in light of that resurrection in such a way that that we are looking up to heaven, that we are 
pursuing holiness together. And Lord, that, that we are uh, together um, just thinking about the, the orientation and the attitude of our hearts because of what you have done. Strengthen us today, Lord, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.